Well, good morning, everybody. I love that opening. It's, I can, there's this picture in my mind of a, the old tent revival meeting going on. And Brother Wally, I'm so glad there wasn't a tent here when I showed up this morning for us to be outside in. There are some smart families. Well, there are a lot of smart families in our fellowship here, but there are some particularly smart, smart ones this week. The temperatures are in Mexico. The Royals are in Cuba. The uh, Genos are in St. Lucia. The Bendels are in Ottawa. They didn't get the memo. <laughs> but hey, while they're enjoying the warmth, the sand, the sea, we're here enjoying each other's warm company. And that's the best I can come up with today. Well, this morning we're continuing on in our Believe series, the book that we've been studying. And uh, this book is broken down into three sections, and right now we're in the middle section. And this is the middle chapter in that middle section, so that puts us halfway through the book now. And today's chapter is entitled, Biblical Community. And how fitting that is, today, Valentine's Day, tomorrow, Family Day, that we celebrate a biblical community. As with all of the chapters, there's a key question, and that question today is, how do I develop healthy relationships with others? There's also a key idea, and that idea is, I fellowship with Christians to accomplish God's purposes in my life, in the lives of those around me, and in the world. And probably most importantly, there's a key verse that goes along with it. And there's actually a couple verses in today's uh, Section And it's found in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 47, and it reads, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, thank you, those who were being saved. That's an interesting verse in today's world, which measures, by, which measures success by how much possessions you own. As opposed to the early Christians, in which success was measured by how many possessions you gave away. This morning's message is broken down into four different points. The first point is that we're created to be in a community. The second point that we'll be looking at is that a biblical community requires the presence of God. Thirdly, we'll look at a biblical community as established by Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. And finally, we'll look at the marks of a biblical community. And marks, by marks, I'm not talking about the scars of a biblical community, but rather what makes a biblical community a community. What are its attributes? Well, when God created Adam... God realized it's not right and it's not good for man to be alone. So he created Eve, a helpmate for Adam. They were the first community. In fact, you can say they are the only community that ever had a worldwide reach. But it was a community of three. There was Adam, there was Eve, and there was God. Sadly, though, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, they were expelled from their from the garden because of their sins. 
and that communal existence was ever changed. Elsewhere in the Bible, it speaks of the disadvantages of being alone and the advantages of having a helper. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This is too meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Men and women were not created to be islands. Now, this doesn't mean we always have to be surrounded by people. But it does mean that without contact with other humans, we begin to suffer mentally, by extension, physically. Psychology Today had an article in it titled, Eight Reasons Why We Need Human Touch More Than Ever. And all eight reasons were very meaningful, powerful, and positive. Even the secular world understands the need for a community. Indeed, the world strives and even longs for a sense of community or belonging. So what's the difference between what the world sees as community and a biblical community? Well, that leads us into our second point, that a biblical community requires the presence of God. It's not an option. It's not a benefit. It's a requirement. Continuing on in Ecclesiastes, the twelfth verse in chapter 4. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Well, why does the author in Ecclesiastes, who's talking about the power of two over one and the benefits of two are better than one, why is he all of a sudden talking about a three-stranded cord? Well, it becomes quite obvious that that third strand is God. And God has to be in the middle. When Adam and Eve sinned, their relationship with God was changed, and to this day it remains ever changed. As punishment for their disobedience, when God cast them out of the garden, he cast them into a life of toil and hardship. But though God was not able to be as intimate as he was when they were in the garden, he still wanted to have a relationship with his creation. God still desired that relationship. And he set aside a group of people for himself that eventually became known as Israel. And when God rescued the Israelites from the hands of Egypt and their slavery and their bondage, he led them through the sea. And he wanted to have that intimate relationship with them. So he commanded them, build me a meeting tent. Build me a place where I can dwell with you. So, God commanded the Israelites to collect precious stones, metal, wood, fine cloth. And he commanded all of those who had skills in dealing with these properties to make a tent. And to make the articles that would be used by the Levites in the worship of God. A large portion of Exodus is, uh, describes the exact detail of the tent that God's glory would fill. The articles and the instruments were u- that were used by the Levites for the worship of God. And it is a blueprint 
that God set before them. And it's interesting to compare how the whole community got involved in this project. If you didn't have the skill, certainly you had something that you can give, possession-wise, to contribute to it. It's just as in the book of Acts, in the key verse that we read. All the people gave of what they had and what they could do for the benefit of the community. God's presence was very real among his chosen people, and it was presence in an unmistakably divine way. Well, fast forward from the Israelite desert wandering to the permanent settlement that they had in the land, as the Bible describes it, was flowing with milk and honey that was promised to them. And God commanded Israel's third king, King Solomon, to build a permanent temple. See, God still wanted that contact with his people. And just as in the portable place of worship in Moses' time, the temple Solomon constructed had within it a place for God's presence to be made known. Both places had a holy of holiest places, where only under God's specific instruction and direction could somebody enter. This was a very real reminder that God not only desired to be close in proximity to his people, but that he was in charge and he was not to be taken lightly. He was to be central in the lives of his people, not just someone who was to be thought of or to be used on the whims of the people or when they thought it best suited them. He was to be there permanently and always. When God offered salvation through Jesus Christ to the Jews, he, offered, he ushered in a new covenant. And with this new covenant came a new temple, a third temple, much different than the first two. For this temple was not made with stone and with wood, but rather with bone and with flesh. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it reads, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. When God offered salvation to the Jews, as a whole, the Jewish nation rejected Jesus' message. And so God offered salvation to the Gentiles. And through that, the whole world has the offering of salvation, has the ability to take up that offer. And even though the new covenant was radically different from the old one, the same desire of God to be central in the lives of his people remained. The big difference is that instead of God dwelling among his people like he did in the tent of the meeting, like he did in the permanent temple, now God was going to dwell within his people. And he did that through the third part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. When you accept Christ as your Savior, when you turn your life over to him, the Holy Spirit doesn't just come and say, welcome to the family. He comes and he dwells within you. He becomes a part of you. Well, let's take a look at the third point that we have. The biblical community as established by Christ a very well-known section in the Bible found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 13, we'll take a look at. It describes the body of the church in comparison to our physical bodies. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, 
And though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. This chapter goes on to describe how we who are Christians are made up of many parts or individuals, each unique and each equipped to edify the body of the community. One cannot say to the other one, you're not needed, you're not important. If we were to say to Tim Campbell, your services are no longer needed here, Tim, we can look after the things that you do. He would be quickly missed when we realize just all the things that Tim does. But it's not just what someone contributes to the greater whole that's important. If that were the case, we would merely be a group of selfish people, only looking to do or to see what you can do for me. What can you do to make my life easier? Well, continuing with that that example, if we were to say to Tim, your services are no longer needed here, not only would we miss what Tim does, but we would miss Tim as a person, as a part of the family. And perhaps that's even more critical. Each member of the Christian community is loved by God so much so that he has chosen not only to dwell among us, but to dwell within us. As such, we are called not to be served, but to serve one another. To be served or to serve, it sounds like a subtle difference, but the attitudes that it produces are worlds apart. You see, if you're someone who is always served, then it's very easy to develop the attitude of, I deserve to be served. Now, that sounds like a campaign slogan. I deserve to be served. To be served. <laughs> but it develops an attitude of selfishness. Whereas, if you serve, it develops an attitude of humility. And that's exactly the example Christ gave us. That's exactly the example the early Christians practiced in the book of Acts. It's no mistake that after chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians, the chapter describing how we are one body with many parts, each uniquely equipped and each individually important. After that chapter comes chapter 13, the love chapter. Because without love, the Bible says, it's impossible to please God. And when it's impossible to please God, it's impossible to please the Spirit living within you. It's God's desire that nobody should be lost from this community that was established at great expense to God. No one can say they're a part of this biblical community known as the church because of their ancestry. You can't say to somebody, my parents belong to this church, so that makes me a Christian. It doesn't work that way. Your ancestry has nothing to do with it. We were all once outsiders until we accepted Christ as our Savior, at which time we were adopted into the community of the church. Jesus taught with this parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son, that it's never too late to return home, or by extension, come home for the first time. You're never so lost that you can never be found. This parable is found in Luke chapter 15. There are two other parables before it. Both examples of what was lost and is found. This is like the lost and found department in the Bible. The parable of the lost son 
is about a community. In this case, it's a community of a family. In some ways, I wish this parable was titled The Parable of the Father and Two Sons. Because there are two sons in the story, but we often lose sight of the older son, the second son. Maybe that's because we all relate so much to the younger one, the prodigal son, the son who wandered away. Because let's face it, we were all lost at one time before Christ came and found us. You all know the story because it's a story you've all lived. It's the story of a young man who goes up to his dad one day and says, I want my share of the inheritance. You've heard of that living will thing. Well, I think it's time that we maybe owned up to that. I'd like to have my share of the inheritance so I can enjoy it while I'm still young. So the father relents and he says, okay, I'll give it to you. And before long, the young son sees, uh, uh, his, sets his sights on greener pastures and he, he wanders off. He heads off to make his own fortune. Well, his fortune that he has is soon squandered on loose living and wild parties. <clears throat> and before long, the country that he's living in, far away from his home, comes upon a famine. He has no money. He has no skills. He winds up having to take a job dealing with one of the unclean animals in the Jewish culture. He had to feed pigs. This was humiliating, demeaning for him. And he wished he could eat what the pigs had to eat. He was so hungry. Well, one day he comes to his senses and he says, I know what I'll do. In my father's household, his servants have food of plenty. I know I've screwed up. I've sinned against him. I've sinned against God. I'll go back and I'll beg his, I'll beg his forgiveness. And maybe he'll let me become one of his servants. And I'll at least have food to eat and a place to stay. So he heads back. And, you know, he's been feeding pigs for a while. Probably living amongst the pigs. He's been walking a long way to get back. There's been a drought on. I'm sure when he's getting close to home, he stunk. He needed a bath big time. But what did his father do? When he saw him coming in the distance, he recognized him. He ran out to greet him. And he didn't get close to him. He said, oh, son, I'm glad you're home, but maybe you can have a bath first and then, uh, then, then we can hug. No, he wrapped his arms around him. He didn't care what he looked like. He didn't care what he smelled like. His son, who was lost, had come home. He called to his servants. He said, get a robe, get a ring, put it on his finger. Let's have a party, a welcome home party for my son who has come home. Well, the older son wasn't so pleased when he found out what was unfolding. It's a story we've all lived because we were all lost at one time. But the relationship the father has with the older son is often skipped and it has some important lessons to it. In this parable, Jesus taught his listeners about the joy that was felt when someone who has wandered or drifted away from the family returns. As a biblical family or community, we too should feel the same joy when somebody who has wandered away returns or when someone comes to God for the first time. We need to have that same sense of joy in our hearts. We need to guard against the attitude of the elder son who had resentment for his younger brother when his father showed his affection for him on his return. As a biblical community, we need to guard against jealousy 
not only within our own particular community here at BFA, but worldwide as well. Our family extends well beyond these walls. In Jesus' parable, the attitude of the eldest son was equated to the Pharisees and how their hearts were hard to the teachings of Jesus Christ. The older son in the story only thought of the past sins of his younger brother. When his younger brother returned with a repentant heart, and that's a key here, the younger son had a repentant heart when he came home. All he could feel was jealousy towards the affection his father showed his younger son. Instead of sharing in his father's joy, all he could do was grumble about how you never gave me a party. In fact, he was having his own party at that time, a pity party. And he was the only one there. You people here at BFA are a surrogate family to myself and my family. We have no other family living in the north. We have a hard enough time just getting my family to visit the north. Yeah. But you have been a family to us. We are all brothers and sisters in the Christian family called the church. We all need to guard against jealousy, pride, and the unforgiveness of the older brother. And I'm so grateful for the love that has been showed to myself and my family over the years. Since we are adopted into God's family, we should ourselves adopt the attitude of Christ Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, there's a wonderful description of the attitude we should all have in our own church families. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to their own interests, but to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in a human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a wonderful example that is for us to strive for. It's a lofty goal, and in a lot of ways it's unattainable, but it doesn't mean we don't strive for it. This is the biblical community that Christ established. We are his bride, that is the church. What a wonderful analogy, what a wonderful visual picture that is, that Jesus Christ considers us so special that he calls us his bride, that which he loves dearly. So much so that he would not consider anything too great a price in order to keep us safe. But so far we've looked at how we were created to be a part of a community. We've looked at how a biblical community needs God to be at the centerpiece. 
We've also looked at the values of the biblical community as established by Jesus Christ. But finally, let's look at the marks of a biblical community. In the book that we're studying, the book that's titled Believe, it lists a number of attributes that are part of a biblical community. Hospitality, love, generosity, submission, humility. These are all very important, and I encourage you to ask yourself the question, how do I make them a part of my life? I'd like to step back a little bit and ask the question, how do you know if you are a part of a biblical community? How do you know if you are a part of a biblical community? When I was a pilot, the very first job I had was flying the plane at a skydiving club. It's probably the most fun I ever had flying. I would take people up to different altitudes and watch them jump out of my airplane. And they would smile when they did it. I had everybody from first-time students to people who were practicing for events. Sometimes they would climb out and hang off my airplane in groups of four and then they'd go all at once to make different patterns in the sky. And that was my job to fly the airplane. And I was in their community. They were very welcoming, a very friendly group of people. They always engaged me when I was there. They were always thankful when I was there. I mean, without me, how were they going to jump out of an airplane more than two feet off the ground? But it was a community that was very inviting. After the day's over, we would often have a bonfire, sit around and enjoy each other's company. And I was always in that community. Some of the, the most excited people I saw were the first-time students. I mean, the, they would be taught how to jump out of the airplane. And the way they had to do it was the plane I flew had a wing on top and there was a strut going to the fuselage. And we'd have to grab onto the strut and step out the door and step onto the tire of the airplane while I held the brakes. And they would be hanging out there in the airflow. And then when the instructor yelled at them, go, they had to let go and take a step off into nothing. And if they refused to, I just took my foot off the brake. No, I'm just, I just, I never did that. I never ever did that. Just to set the record straight. But as much as I was in that community, I was never a part of that community because I had never jumped out of an airplane myself. Until one day, when, after about the second season, and I saw all the smiles on these people's faces after I got back down. And I thought, oh, I'm going to give this a try. And the owner let me take the course. He let me take it for free. So on, on my day, when it came, I too stepped out on that tire, holding onto the airplane, into the slipstream. And when I was yelled at, go, I just stepped off and into nothing. And I felt the adrenaline rush of being out there. I felt the excitement of doing that. I felt the relief when I looked up and saw my parachute was open. <laughs> I was now in that community. I was a part of that community as well. That's a huge difference because now I could relate to what they were feeling. When they talked about something, I knew exactly what they were talking about. 
A part of that jump is always going to stay with me, mainly the two screws they screwed into my ankle to screw it back together after I landed. <laughs> but also, I know that I'm always a part of that community because I know the experience of riding a parachute. And that's the way it is with the Christian church. You can be in the church. You can come here. You can fellowship with other Christians. You can come to the games night. You can um, come to the Bible studies. You can come to the Sunday service. You can be in the church, but never be a part of the church. And the only way you can ever be a part of the church is to step off that tire in a leap of faith. That is the acceptance of Jesus Christ. Until you've done that, you don't know what we're talking about. You don't know what we're experiencing. Until you have the Holy Spirit living within you, you have no idea what it means to be a Christian. We can describe it to you until we're blue in the face, but you have no idea what it is. It's a lot like a blind person who has never, ever had any sight. And he asked you, Describe the color blue for me. How do you describe the color blue? You can say, well, the sky is blue. He says, well, I've never seen the sky. What's the color blue? You can pick out all of the objects that are blue. And he could say, I could feel them. I could smell them. I could touch them. But I don't know what they look like. And it's the same thing for Christianity, the biblical community. Unless you ever make that commitment to Christ, you never truly know what it means to be a Christian. And that's what we're all talking about here, well, at least I'm talking about here today, is a biblical community. Hopefully you're agreeing with me. A biblical community is about people with a single-mindedness. A single-mindedness of having Christ in their lives, of having the desire to serve him, of handing your life over to Christ, to do it as his will demands. And sometimes that demand is great, as we read about every Sunday with the persecuted church. Sometimes that demand is light. It's a light load to bear. Sometimes it's a heavy load to bear. But we never bury it alone. Because Christ is always that third strand of the cord with us. And we can take great joy and solace in that. And if anything you take away from today, unity is part of community. And in fact, is probably the most important part. Because in any group of people, you get people who disagree, who rub each other the wrong way. But if you can have unity, all of that slides under the bridge for the betterment of the community, for the furthering of the gospel message. And most importantly of all, we can look forward to all having that eternity in heaven. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that we can come together Even though it's cold and wintry outside, you warm our hearts, Lord. You warm our hearts because we know that you love us so much. On this Valentine's Day, Lord, we say we love you. We love you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, our body, everything we have, Lord. We love you. We thank you for your sacrifice for us. We thank you for your care for us, for the times that you've picked us up and carried us through times when our knees were too weak for us to even stand. We thank you for the joy that we feel whenever we know that we are on the path you want us to be on. We thank you for that joy that you give us. Help us, Lord, as we go from 
these walls into the community, into the, into the mission field. Help us to be ambassadors for you. That we would come away next week and say, it's been good to be with the Lord. And it's been good to be a part of his community. So we thank you for these and we ask for your blessings. In your name we pray. Amen. Is there a closing hymn, Wally? Come on. Jesus' name.